Morning, everyone. You guys well? No, yes. Yes, we well. It's great to be able to be here again, um, preaching to a full church is such a joy. And um, we've obviously spent a month in Mauritius and we're back now, which is great. So good to be home. So good to be a part of this community. And uh, Nick and Katia are out in Wales at the moment. They're busy um, together with a, a group of leaders from across the globe, are busy meeting together to encourage the church in, in Europe. And uh, just some beautiful pictures coming through this morning of them busy praying for guys who are about to go and plant churches out into, into Europe and Wales and different areas out there. So just beautiful. I mean, last week we had Terry Virgo here. Um, if you weren't here, I would really encourage you to go and listen to those messages just about the love of God and His grace to us and setting us free from the law of sin and death and bringing us into, into righteousness and peace and, and, and fellowship with our Father. Beautiful message and beautiful truths that we, we get to live in. And uh, uh, did you enjoy last week? I thought... I thought last week was incredible. I thought it was a beautiful time where, in a sense, God actually loosened something in us to be free before him again. And uh, while I was in worship this morning, I actually, I felt just God stir something in me prophetically. But, um, you know, last week, I think it was actually a call for, for in, in a way, for God's people to be free, for us to be free. And uh, it reminded me of Moses when he goes to Pharaoh. And the first time that he goes there, he says, let my people go that they may worship me. This is what God says, and, and in a way, that's what last week was. Let my people go that they may worship me. And what's the very next thing that Pharaoh does? He doubles the tasks of the, the, the Israelites in that moment. And, uh, and you may feel like this week, actually, you come out of this beautiful grace message, and this week it feels like the enemy's just doubled the load on top of you. What you thought you were free from came again with, with double vengeance. And uh, I just felt God saying, actually, hold. Just hold. And I uh, felt in, in Romans, uh, not Romans, Exodus 14 verse 13 it says Moses answered the people do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today the Egyptians you see today you will never see again the Lord will fight for you you need only be still and uh, just uh, feel that for us as a community, even as we walk through actually holding on to this grace message, don't let the, the burdens of, of the law of that old husband try and, and come over you again in your, in your parenting, in your workspace, in your, in your marriage, in your own personal life. Actually live free according to the truths of God that he's given us. So um, trust that we will do that, that we will hold on to that message. If you haven't listened to it, really do encourage you to go and do that. This morning... You get to go through Mark chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, please take them out. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, we're going to be in. And uh, we're continuing with our Mark series. We were there, and then Terry Berger, and now we're back there again. So it's a little bit higgledy-piggledy, but we'll find our, our rhythm as we go through. Uh, maybe as you open the Bible, I'm just going to pray. Father, we need you, Jesus, your very presence in our lives. Uh, I thank you for your word, that you don't leave us high and dry to try and work this out for ourselves, but you... You give us your word, you, you teach us, you, you show us yourself, you, you've taken great strains, Lord, that we would know you, that we would know you in your fullness. And I uh, thank you for stories like these that we're going to read today where the disciples get it wrong yet again, but yet you're so patient and kind and loving and you take the time to teach them yet again. And I ask that you would do that with us as well, Lord, where perhaps we find ourselves in a, in a difficult space or wrong thinking or whatever it may be, would you by your spirit come and be with us this morning? Come and open up your word to us, Lord. I ask that it says, apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't hear this word apart from you. I can't speak this word apart from you. But would you come and rest here by your spirit, by your presence, I ask you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 
9 verse 30, and uh, I've loved the journey of Mark. I, I've, I think it's been an amazing book that we get to, in a way, get to see into the, the intimate details of Jesus walking with his disciples. And some of the stories I honestly would have left out, even probably this one today. And um, we're building from, from Mark chapter 8, going forward now into Mark chapter 9, and we saw um, Jesus busy revealing the cross to, to, um, to Peter, and Peter getting it wrong and, and rebuking Jesus and then Jesus having to sort out Peter. And it's just like, it's a little bit of like, whoa. And I, I, great, I find great courage in this because, I mean, I don't know if you, you find this, but certainly in my life, the discipleship, sometimes it feels like I'm getting these moments of incredible revelation where I'm seeing Jesus for who he is. And the very next moment, I say something really stupid or I do something that's a little bit doff. It's like these, these polarized moments at times, and, and God's very gracious and very kind and, and takes the time to teach us as we walk out, out this discipleship walk. And we see that again here in Mark chapter 9. And Jesus is again trying to reveal something to his disciples. And we'll pick up the text. And it says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was wanting to teach his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. You can understand after the last episode, maybe feeling a little bit sheepish, they they took a a rather cautious approach in not asking Jesus or trying to correct him again. Then they came to Capernaum. when, When he was in the house, he asked him, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because in the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm that eats them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Quite a text, isn't it? It seems a little bit bitsy. I remember the first time that I read it, it's like, it's like almost like Mark's trying to fit a whole lot of different things into this section before he goes on to something else. And uh, I don't know if you felt like that, but the first time I read it, I did. But um, we're just going to work through this passage piece by piece. And I trust that God will open up the word for us as we look at it. So Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples. They're busy sitting down. He pulls them away from, from the crowd and he sits down with them and he begins to teach them. And he, asks, and he says to them that, um, that, that he's going to be betrayed. 
that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and that um, they're going to kill him and that three days later he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. And uh, how often do, do we find ourselves, Jesus, trying to teach us about something and, and we fail to hear what he's actually saying? We fail to hear that he's trying to communicate something vastly important to us. It's, you know, Jesus in some ways puts the crowds aside for a moment. And in this moment, in this next part, on the way to Jerusalem, he's like, I need to invest myself into you disciples. And he's taking this moment to be personal with them. And what he's teaching them here is the most important thing about his entire ministry. He's teaching about the cross. He's teaching about the fact that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to die. That, that people are going to hand him over, that he's going to be murdered, that he's going to be put on a cross, and that he's going to rise again. And that, and that this is the central part of everything that he's doing. And it's the second time that he's trying to teach his disciples about this. And it's almost like his disciples miss it completely. And they get stuck in, a, in, a, in an argument about who's the greatest. It's, like, it's almost like this polar conversation that's going on. Jesus is busy talking about he's gonna, how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die how he's going to be raised to life again, and they're busy arguing about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> and it's quite a, a surreal moment that we find ourselves in. And, and sometimes we can laugh at the disciples, but I, you know, I think this happens to us so often. You know, sometimes we get caught in conversations, in, in, in arguments that, that are so vastly different to what Jesus is trying to teach us, trying to convey to us. We see that Jesus is trying to teach us about the gospel the central message of everything that he's trying to do. And sometimes we can make Christianity about so many other things, but here in this moment, Jesus is bringing the very central thing, the most important thing about what he's wanting to do. And that's Jesus dying on a cross, being betrayed and handed over to men and men putting him to death and, and dying in the grave and raising three, rising three days later. It's the central message of us as Christians. But here in this moment, the disciples are, in a way, being, being um, pressured by culture. They, they're, in a sense, they're busy looking through this new kingdom that they're being invited into. You can imagine there's this moment where they, they've sort of been called to Jesus. They've been included in the 12. Peter, James, and John have just gone on to this transfiguration moment with them where they've got to experience Jesus in his, in his fullness, and they've come down from this mountain, and then they, they can't cast out a demon, and now they're busy getting caught in an argument about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? How is this hierarchy in this new kingdom going to work? You know, you can imagine, why was Peter, James, and John included in, in the transfiguration moment and not the rest of them? I wonder if that's in some ways what they were discussing. Where, how are we going to fit into this new religious system that's going to take place when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and establishes his kingdom, which they were probably thinking. They're thinking through what's going to happen. And in some ways, they're busy vying for position in, the, in, the, in this new kingdom that's going to form. And, and, and Jesus has to take a moment and, and really recalibrate their way of thinking. And their way of thinking was so influenced by culture. They were so influenced by the, the Jewish and the, the, the rabbinical ways that were happening at this time. You know, you can imagine there were the Pharisees who were like the, the upper end of all society. Then there were the, the, the scribes. Then there were these different levels of hierarchy. There was the high priest who was able to do this. And, and in, a, in a sense, they're busy thinking through the kingdom as they see the culture around them. And Jesus has to take a moment and transform their thinking to actually what he's doing and not what culture says the kingdom of God is about. Does that make sense? This whole conversation that they're busy having now about who's the greatest is in essence the lens that they're looking through about how they think the kingdom is going to be. And Jesus has to take a moment to really teach them about what the kingdom is truly going to be like. And I think how often our conversations 
are shaped by what we see in culture around us and, and our arguments are about the culture that's busy happening around us rather than about the essence of what the kingdom is truly about, which is about Jesus dying, Jesus rising again, about his exaltation, about his work on the cross. And so often we get stuck in these arguments and these conversations that are so far from the reality or the central part of the kingdom of God. I think of, of these, these, these conversations that, that happen nowadays. I mean, even you, you think of um, things like, like the LGBTQR, a necessary conversation. But if the, if the gospel is not the central piece of that conversation, we can miss it. You know, the culture can shape the way that we want to do things. You can, I mean, there's so many different examples that we can think of. You can think of, of if you're not an elder, perhaps if you're not an elder, then am I, where am I going to fit in the kingdom of God? I need to be an elder to perhaps, to perhaps be seen as someone who has importance in the kingdom of God. Or if I'm not a deacon, or if I'm not a leader of some sort, or if I'm not hierarchied in some way, shape, or form, how am I going to be effective in the kingdom of God? Jesus knows what they're arguing about. He sees the conversations that we're getting involved in. He sees that, that they're thinking through the kingdom in a way that's different to what he's doing. And in some ways, they've missed, they've missed what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus has to take the time to, to teach them now. And now he's going to teach them not about not being great, but about what greatness is in the kingdom. And I love that. You know, Jesus doesn't say it's bad that you desire to be great. You can see that in sitting down um, in verse 35, he says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servants of all. And then he took a child and he placed them among them. Take, and, and, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, it's not bad that you want to be great. It's not bad that you want to be significant. I think all of us in some ways, shape or form, have a desire to be significant in the world. That's not a bad thing. Jesus is not saying that it's bad to be great, but he's redefining what greatness look like, looks like in the kingdom. And he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, what it's going to look like is not being the greatest in terms of what society says is great, but it's going to be you being a servant of all. It's going to be you being like me. It's going to be you actually taking on the position of a servant of, of even the least person. And that's why he takes a child and he puts his child in his lap. And, uh, and, he, and he, a child in that day was a rather insignificant person. They had no social standing. They had no, um, like today, I think in some ways children can be idols. But in that day, children were seen to be the lowest social standing in all society. And Jesus is saying, actually, if you want to be great in the kingdom, if you want to be, if you want to be the one who's, who's greatest, be the servant of the very least of my followers. Be the servant of those who seem like they're most insignificant in the kingdom of God. Don't look at those who have a high standing in social society. Don't long to be like them. Don't look to the world standard of success, but be the servant of, of the very least person that you think is the least in my kingdom. It's a beautiful truth. And uh, we see him speaking about um, himself in, in Philippians chapter 2. It speaks about Jesus taking on the nature of a servant. And he's saying, actually, forget about the world standards. This is the standard that I am going to set myself. And it says, you being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather... He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in human appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
And Jesus is taking a moment to teach his disciples about what greatness is. And greatness is, is, is this upside-down kingdom that we live in. It's, it's being lost. It's being the servant of all. It's not looking for your own standing. It's not looking for your own selfish gains. It's not looking for your own standing in society. But rather, it's making yourself nothing and serving the very least. It's about actually thinking less of yourself and offering up yourself for those who are precious in God's eyes. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And it goes directly against what culture says is great in our world. It goes directly against our own intuition. It goes directly against everything that even in ourselves, our own flesh, we, we want to be recognized. We want to be seen. And Jesus is saying, actually, you are seen. You're seen by me. And you're seen by me when you're doing what seems like the very least to those who I find precious. Beautiful moments of Jesus teaching his disciples about what greatness in the kingdom is. And then John carries on and he says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus says. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because of you, belong, uh, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. And um, you can see here the disciples again needing to um, understand what greatness is. Jesus again needing to teach them. And, uh, and John, it's the first time that he's mentioned by himself here. He's speaking for the disciples and he says, we saw somebody casting out a demon in your name and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. And again, the, the, the culture is shaping the way that they're thinking. It's this exclusive thinking that, that is a part of the, the Jewish way, that if you're not in the Jewish kingdom, if you're not a part of the religious sect, you can't do something significant for God. And Jesus is saying, actually, that's, that's not what I've come to do. I've come to break down these dividing walls of hostility. I mean, in some ways, the disciples, it's amazing. The, the very passage before, they couldn't cast out a demon. And they're busy getting into a, an argument about that. And now they're busy telling somebody who did cast out a demon to stop doing it because they're not a part of who they are. It's like, it's quite a, quite a crazy, crazy thing that they're going. In some ways, it's like the spiritual pride that's happening here. It's like, we, we couldn't do it, but because we couldn't do it, nobody else must. <laughs> you know, it's like, and we're going to make sure that, that, that we hold on to our religious sect. We're one of the 12. We're the in crowd. We're the important ones. And, uh, and Jesus in this moment breaks down that thing and he says, actually, anyone who's not against us is for us. The kingdom of God is going to advance through multifaceted um, displays of Jesus working through different um, spheres of his church and society. And, and we should be very careful of being exclusive. Sometimes uh, I hear people say we, we love Red Point. And I, I know I love Red Point. But we've just come from another church that didn't do this and didn't do that. And, and in some ways I think, oh, that's the church of Jesus. That's the bride of Christ. Redpoint's not the answer to the world. We, we don't have the answer. Redpoint has its own shortfalls. Redpoint has its own thing. We're not, we're not looking for a brand. We're not looking for a denomination. We're not looking for, for, for our own exclusivity. We're looking for the kingdom of God to advance through every different sphere. I can remember being in, in a church up in Pretoria. I won't mention the denomination, but I went in on a Sunday morning, and I think the youngest person there was 95 in the shade. Like, I, I literally, I remember sitting there, and I think, I wonder if this lady's going to die in front of me. Like, that was my thoughts, and I thought, yo, okay. But I, I thought I wanted to be at church on Sunday. And we stood up for worship, 
And I felt the presence of God come in that place like, like, and I just thought, oh Lord, forgive me. They're different to us. But would the kingdom of God advance through this place? Would the kingdom of God advance through those who may be different, those who do things slightly differently, who are not necessarily a part of, of us, but who are actually a part of Christ? And would the kingdom of God advance through them? Would we take the time to, to pray for different denominations, to, to hold them up and to, and to see their ministries advance? I mean, I love how revival, God uses the Presbyterians, God uses the Methodists, God uses whoever he wants to at any stage of his journey, of his story to see the kingdom of God advance. And, he, and he's setting this up right and be careful of having an exclusive mindset that we have the answer. We don't have the answer. We walk humbly before God and he has the answer and he is the answer. We've got to be very careful of these conversations that we get involved in. And I love that Jesus takes a moment to recalibrate his disciples in terms of what he's wanting to do, not what they think is best. It's amazing how we can miss the gospel. You know, all of these teachings actually come out of them missing that first part that Jesus was wanting to teach them about. It's amazing. If we miss the gospel, we miss everything. You know, we miss the gospel. We have to do a whole lot of almost catching up work to try and understand the kingdom of God. But when you understand the gospel, I think the rest makes sense. I don't think we need as much correction. And it's amazing, you know, if you, if you fail to understand the gospel, you'll get involved in a whole lot of other conversations that con- are completely irrelevant to the kingdom of God. And I would say, take time to study the gospel. Take time to see the central work of what Jesus is wanting to do. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck, and they were thrown into the sea. How's that for a statement? How our actions can influence others. Now, Jesus is saying, actually, welcome the insignificant. Love those who seem like they mean nothing, because I do. He's teaching them about including those who may seem like they are outcasts. Bring them in. I've come that the kingdom of God may, 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 may include everyone, the Gentiles and the Jews, all the kingdom. I mean, all the world will be able to come and enter my kingdom. And, and here he goes and he says, actually, rather than worrying about who to keep out and, and, um, and, and who you think you're going to be in the kingdom, he says, be careful that you don't cause others to stumble. Be careful that you, by your actions and what you're doing, don't cause one of these precious little children of mine to stumble. And it's not speaking about only children. It's speaking about anyone in the kingdom of God, anyone who believes. Your actions, what you do, what you say. He's actually, I think in a sense, he's, he's really challenging his disciples here. What you do and what you say can influence people. And that influence is important to Jesus. And he says it's better for you... If, then then causing one of these little ones and me to stumble, to die. That's basically what he's saying, which which is a a serious statement for us. And and Terry Virgo last week spoke about making good choices, about, about making good choices with how we act, with what we do. And Jesus is saying, be careful what you say, because what you say influences other people. And now he goes on and he says, be careful how you act. And he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two and be thrown into hell. Serious statement. Jesus is not saying that you should go and cut off your arm and you should not go and pluck out your eye. But the truth of what he's saying, he's using, he's using hyperbole here. He's using a, a larger expression of a truth. And, and he's saying take drastic action against your own sin so that you don't cause others to some stumble. He's saying forget about your standing in society. Forget about who those outside are going to influence. And he says watch the evil inside of you that is going to affect others and how they advance in the kingdom. Watch the evil inside of you and take drastic action against your sin. And, um, and this is about the choices that we make. And I love that he uses our eyes, what we look at. You know, it's amazing that, you know, at times Jesus says, actually, it's out of your heart that sin comes. But yeah, he's actually speaking about physical actions, instruments of sin, your eye. What do you look at? What do you spend your time viewing? How much of your time is spent on, on things outside of the kingdom? I mean, I think in some ways Jesus is saying you, you spend so much time looking at the Pharisees and all these religious sects that in some ways your thinking is being transformed by that. But, but actually, what do you see? What do you look at? What do you spend your time viewing? Jesus is saying actually take drastic action against the stuff that is not of the kingdom. And the stuff that is of the kingdom, spend your time focusing on because as you behold, you're transformed into his image. It says about your hands, the things that you do. The things that you do. Actually, he says, be careful what you do. It's important that your actions, I mean, if, simple example, if you're going to a bra and, and somebody has an alcohol problem and you think it's just okay for you to drink and, and that drink that you just freely have because you're free in the kingdom causes somebody else to stumble. Jesus says, actually, take drastic actions against that. Forget, forget your, what you're wanting and, and think of the, 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 the life of somebody else. Simple example. Think of others. Think of what you do affects others. How you act in your workspace can, can, in essence, help somebody into the kingdom or cause somebody to stumble. Oh, if you as a Christian can do that, is that okay for me to do? And it's a, it's a serious thing that Jesus is speaking about. He speaks about our, our feet, where you go. The Proverbs speak about how this one man walks along the street that there's known to be a prostitute on. And as he walks down that street, almost ignorantly, he, he gets taken up by this prostitute. And where he's going, in a sense, actually, it, it affects both himself and somebody else is busy watching this happening here at the same time. And, and that will affect somebody else's walk in the kingdom. It's, it's a serious statement. And Jesus says, actually, that the goal is that we would enter life. That's the goal. He wants us to enter life. That's what he says. And, and if it's, if it's going to mean that you, that you forego something of your own so that, that we would enter life and that we would be able to bring others along to enter life, let it be so. Let it be so. Throw off the things that are unnecessary for the central part of the kingdom, which is the gospel and people entering into life. But the severe warning that comes with it is that, is that sin can lead you to hell. And what do I mean by that? Terry Virgo spoke so much last week about grace. Are you bringing this heavy thing now, Chris, about, uh, about a list of to-dos? And I'm not. And I'll, I'll wrap it up just now in Jesus. But, but this is in Christ. And sin does affect us as Christians. It does affect us. No matter how, how much you think it doesn't, it does. Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, that's believers that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What is the writer saying here? He's saying that, that if we continue to live habitually in a pattern of sin that, that is unbridled, it just carries on, what happens is that we, our hearts become hardened to God. Our hearts become hardened to his word and to his spirit. And because of that, I think we get to a place where we can't repent. We can't turn away from that thing because actually our hearts are so hard to God and his word that, we, that we've, in a sense, fallen away from his righteousness. And we don't want to be like that. We want to be people who, who live in a place in the presence of God, full access to God all the time, where we don't want to be continuing to use that escape hatch that, that Terry was, was speaking about. That's, that's, that's the, the, the exception, not the norm of how we live as believers. Isaiah 59 verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that you will not hear. And I think sin, it, it stops our hearing of God. It stops our, our, our hearing of the Holy Spirit who leads us into his righteousness. And, uh, and I find, and, and we will know this, when we, when, we, when we sin, it feels like we lose something of the presence of God the anointing of God, the power of God on display in our life and in every aspect that we, we live in. And, and what, he's, what Jesus is saying here is don't be careful of the sin in your life and take drastic action against it so that you don't get to a place where your heart is so hardened that you can no longer receive the grace of Jesus anymore and that your ears are hard to hearing his word. Does it make sense? Feet, where you go, hand what you do, eyes what you look at. Be very wise how you live. We want to we make sure that we're not putting a stumbling block before anyone, but that we're living in a way of freedom and righteousness and holiness. And that when people look at us, they, they see this freedom and righteousness and, and this love that we're able to enjoy. And they, they become attracted to that. And then the last part here. Quite a funny statement. Everyone will be salted with fire. I read that and I thought, what the heck does that mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, I, it took me, and, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. When I read, read up on this, commentators, they, they differed quite widely on what it may mean. They say it's one of the hardest lines to translate from the, from the Greek into the English. And um, I, I think the best way that I can understand it is, is by, by our lives as disciples, our whole life is an offering unto God. Our whole life is an offering unto God. And, and that offering, that life that we live, will go through a purification process where God will use different trials and sufferings and difficulties to, to in, in a sense, purify that offering for himself. Where do I get that? So Leviticus 2 verse 13 says, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave salt, do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings and add salt to all your offerings. So salt is something of the covenant of God that we enter into with him, okay? And, and everyone will be salted with fire. So everyone that is a true disciple of Jesus, their offering to God will be purified through the fire. We'll be purified through trials. We'll be purified through sufferings. We'll be purified through hardships. And sometimes even our own body parts go through these hardships. And it's Jesus preparing us for glory. 
It's Jesus purifying our faith. It's Jesus putting us through the fire, not that consumes, but that purifies. And we as believers will go through troubles. We'll go through suffering. We'll go through difficulty. And in a sense, Jesus is taking through his disciples through one of these right now where he's busy correcting them and shaping them and transforming their thinking and, and, and in a way rebuking them so that they would be purer. And Jesus is always wanting to bring us to a place of purity. And then he goes on and he says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And here salt is taking on a different shape. The world cannot survive without salt. And that day, it was a, it was a preservative. It was the thing that, that in a sense held the world together in terms of being able to eat. And, and at the same time, also sharing salt with one another was a fellowship thing that they would do as disciples. Saltiness is the characteristic of disciples. It's the life-giving covenant inside of us that we give to one another that preserves the world. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus is actually portraying here. He's saying actually that the salt in you don't lose the essence of who you are, the purpose of who you are. Don't lose that. Don't lose the gospel inside of you. Don't lose the covenant of God inside of you and have salt among each other and be at peace with each other. Selfishness and self-centeredness will cause us to not be at peace with each other. But Jesus is teaching us that offering up your life, taking a place of lowliness, looking out for the, the needs of others, taking a, a drastic action against your own sin will allow the salt of God, the covenant of God to be strong within us as we, as we fellowship with one another and as we live out this discipleship life together so that the kingdom of God would go forward. Does that make some type of sense? Are you guys with me? What's the conclusion? Have I just given you another to-do list of things that we must do and mustn't do? I, no, I haven't. I hope I haven't. I hope you don't feel like you've got a to-do list. What Jesus is teaching us here, it's actually about himself. He's teaching us about himself. It's impossible for us to do this in ourselves. He doesn't just tell us what to do, but he sets the example of how we to do it. He goes before us. He's the one who, who, who becomes the ultimate servant. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility by, by in a sense, becoming the sacrifice that is needed to, to bring unity to all people. He's the one who brings those who are outside in. He's the one through, through whom the, the gospel allows those who are far away from God to come into the presence of God. He opens the way into the kingdom and makes it available to everyone. He's not restricted, but he includes everyone and invites all to find greatness in the kingdom of God. He made the ultimate best choice. And every moment of every part of his life, he's the one who made the best choices. He's the one through whom the Spirit of God has come. He became the ultimate offering, the lamb that was sacrificed and satisfied God's demand of holiness. And he gave himself. He made a way. He shows us the way and then gives himself to us that we can live in the way that he calls us to. This isn't a to-do list of what we need to do. It's Jesus, it's Jesus showing us what he's going to do and how we are going to follow him into the glory of his kingdom. And he's giving us moments that we get to, um, that we get to glimpse into as we, as we process this. So what do we do? I thought the best place for us to end off with is in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12. Can you just stand together? I know it's hot. I know the fans are going. Let's stand together. And I just want to read this passage of Scripture. And it says, there's such a great cloud of witnesses that are around us. 
Let us throw off everything that hinders. Might be the conversations that you've been involved in. Might feel that you've messed up, that you've missed what Jesus is saying, that you've got involved in cultural conversations rather than the central part of the gospel. And it says, let us throw off everything that hinders, the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Then it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out with us for us, this discipleship piece that we've been given. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what we do. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer. He is the perfecter. He is the author. He's the one who goes before us. He is the one who has written the story. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Think about him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is this passage telling us to do? Throw off our sin that so easily entangles us. Let go of it. Even this week now, fix your eyes on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's wanting to do in your life. Find the place of freedom again. See him for who he is, his righteousness and his gospel, and, uh, and enter into the glory that he has for you. Is that okay? Francois, can I hand over to you? Chris, that was really great. I think um, for me, if I think of it, especially what the church has gone through, of us as a church with um, Terry Berger being here last week, and he's the master on speaking on, on the understanding of grace and bringing the fullness of grace. I think it's, it's a beautiful exaltation of Jesus and of seen as well. But I think God is just also wanting to remind us that we do not live our lives in isolation. It is not just all about us. It's actually about Jesus, and we have a responsibility for those around us. And I think that is a part of the message that has come through here today. And Jesus is not wanting to put heavy on us, but he wants us to see the value of things the way he sees us. You see how highly valued eternity is in terms of going to heaven and the opposite of hell that is there. And that we as a people... We don't put ourselves on the bondage to obey or, you know, have certain regulations or things for us. But because we so highly value seeing more than just ourselves entering into heaven, that we will respond to a radical call of discipleship, that we would ruthlessly deal with sin in our own lives to the extent that we would cut off whatever needs to be cut off so that we don't, through our actions, cause another to stumble and miss this beautiful salvation that Jesus has for us. And so... Um, I, I'd love for us as, as we sing, it's, it's be enthroned, it's a beautiful song, it's a song of, of dedication ourselves to Him, and of just saying again, Lord, you, you are worth it all, you are worth it, you are so beautiful, what you have done for me is so incredible, so liberating, so free, but make me a true representation of you, and a servant of Christ also to others, that my life, as people follow me, would actually led to finding Jesus, not trying for loopholes and escapes and things like that that actually could cause them to lose their salvation. So Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the strength of your word. Thank you for Chris, Lord. We thank you for just the, the, the opportunity that we each have of entering into a relationship of wholeness with you, something so incredibly beautiful. And like Jesus is even trying to keep on getting his disciples' eyes off themselves and onto him and onto the bigger picture, onto eternity, Lord. I pray that you would help us with it too and that you would cause us, Lord, to live a life that would just enthrone you at all times and bring glory to you. We praise you, Jesus.